In other words, it isn't the symptoms that predict how much anxiety disrupts a person's life. It's how a person feels about those symptoms. It's not how you feel. It's not even being aware of how you feel. It's how you feel about how you feel. It's about how you're judging yourself about your feelings. People who feel non-judging about their feelings do better. Hello, and welcome to the Emotional Expedition Podcast. I'm Meg Thomas, and if you want to live a more open-hearted, magical life, it all starts with your emotions. This podcast will take you on a journey, helping you to better understand, express, release, and heal your emotions. Let's get exploring. As far as emotions go, this one's a biggie. Anxiety. I have a personal and ongoing relationship with it, like many others. One-third of all U.S. adults will be affected by an anxiety disorder in their lifetimes. However, it's estimated that fewer than half will actually seek any type of professional treatment, and it's very difficult to work through an anxiety disorder without some sort of help. And the prevalence is twice as high in women as it is for men. The definition of anxiety from the American Psychological Association is an emotion characterized by feelings of tension, worried thoughts, and physical changes like increased blood pressure. And one thing that's going to come up again and again as we look at emotions is this concept that Brene Brown maps out in Atlas of the Heart. It is this idea of trait versus state. So, A trait is considered to be something that's part of an individual's personality and therefore a long-term characteristic of an individual that shows through their behavior, actions, and feelings. So an example would be, I am a confident person or I'm an anxious person. Those are traits. A state, on the other hand, is just a temporary condition that you're experiencing for a short period of time. So after the state has passed, you'll return to another condition. So traits are long-term and states are short-term. Some of us feel anxious mainly in response to certain situations, while some of us can be naturally more predisposed to anxiety than others. And how we look at this trait versus state is I am more of an anxious person, which would be trait, versus I'm experiencing anxiety right now. That is state. And according to my DNA, I have a typical likelihood of being diagnosed with anxiety, which was listed as about 64 out of 100 women with my genetic makeup. And I would say this statistic feels pretty true to me. I've experienced anxiety many times in my life, and I do a whole lot of things to keep it at bay, like not drinking caffeine and exercising daily. I think I experience both trait and state anxiety. Lately, though, it's been showing up in the form of state anxiety, meaning something or a circumstance triggers it, like my fertility journey, for example. My fertility journey has really amped up the anxiety. 
So I notice when I'm in a cycle, when I'm actually either doing, you know, IVF or retrieval or a transfer, the anxiety gets amped up. I think it stems from the inherent anxiety that this journey just brings with it and the amount of hormones that I am putting into my body that I'm not used to. So during my first round of IVF, the more shots that I had to have in my belly in a day, the more my anxiety would rise. So by the end of that cycle, I was getting around maybe four shots a day. And with each shot, my anxiety would rise in anticipation of the next shot. This was the first time I've ever used CBD oil. I found great relief in taking the oil to help kind of take the edge off of the anxiety for me. It allowed me to be able to keep going when I wasn't sure I could. So now that we understand the difference between state and trait anxiety, there's another type of anxiety called generalized anxiety disorder. And there's a difference between the anxiety we experience on a normal day-to-day basis and generalized anxiety disorder. According to John Hopkins Medicine, generalized anxiety disorder is a condition of excessive worry about everyday issues and situations. It lasts longer than six months, and in addition to feeling worried, you may also feel restlessness, fatigue, trouble concentrating, irritability, increased muscle tension, and trouble sleeping. And on Brene Brown's HBO special, She had on Dr. Percy Ballard to talk about anxiety, and he shared that anxiety isn't just a problem. It can also be used towards our advantage. So there are times that anxiety can be a good thing. So an example of this and what he refers to as functional anxiety would be when your alarm goes off and reminds you that you have a presentation tomorrow and you haven't prepared for it. It tells us something we need to know, and once we respond to it, it's run its course, it's done its job, and it can go away. So functional anxiety, it's just temporary. Then goes on to explain dysfunctional anxiety, which is an anxiety that we are not able to listen to and make sense of or make use of. It keeps us out of the moment and uncomfortable as long as we ignore that warning symbol and that can go on for weeks if we let it. Dr. Percy Ballard says that one thing that can help us with anxiety is psychotherapy. And psychotherapy helps shine a light on why this anxiety is there. And it can help us to separate what anxiety is coming from the past versus in the present, meaning Is it coming from old wounds? Is this a trigger or a pattern? And I know that this shows up for me. So how it's shown up in my life is uh, when my husband goes out into the woods, like he often does, a tiny thought will pop into my head that he's hurt. And then this thought quickly turns into that he has died. This thought at first seems like my intuition is talking to me, and my first thought is to get into my car and go and search for him. I feel my heart start to race, and a sort of panic starts to take over. My thoughts increase in speed, and I'm desperately trying to determine if this is one of my intuitive moments, like I have, or if this is my anxiety. 
So how I've come to tell the difference between the two is my intuition doesn't scare me. It's a calm and loving voice, even when it's telling me something I don't necessarily want to hear. It's always loving. The voice of my anxiety is urgent. It's incessant. It's fearful. And I have played this scenario of Ian dying over and over and over again in so many ways, in so many situations. And often it feels like it has just come out of nowhere. And what I've learned from therapy and doing my own inner work is this anxiety is coming from my past. This is an old wound of mine. I don't ever have the fear that my husband is cheating like so many others experience. My fear is that he is dead. This wound comes from my childhood. It comes from my dad dying in the middle of the night when I was five years old. And it's not that currently I have these thoughts any less than I used to. I still have them and have them more than I would like to admit. The difference is I now have an awareness of the thought when it's happening. I'm now able to see the thought, recognize that it's not my intuition, and it is in fact my anxiety. I'm able to tell myself that he's okay and let the feeling move through my body and let it go. Sometimes it takes me longer to realize what's happening, but the first step is always awareness, and then comes the practice of non-judging. Emily Nagoski, in her book, Come As You Are, highlighted a study that looked at the role of mindfulness in people's experiences with generalized anxiety disorder. What they found was that the participants who were less affected by their symptoms did not experience lower frequency or severity of symptoms. They still had the same amount of symptoms as before. What changed was that they were less impacted by those symptoms because of the mindfulness practice of non-judging. In other words, it isn't the symptoms that predict how much anxiety disrupts a person's life. It's how a person feels about those symptoms. It's not how you feel. It's not even being aware of how you feel. It's how you feel about how you feel. It's about how you're judging yourself about your feelings. People who feel non-judging about their feelings do better. I may not be able to control my anxiety, but I can control how I experience it. And one of my favorite quotes about anxiety is from Elizabeth Gilbert. She said, you are so afraid of surrender because you don't want to lose control, but you never had control. All you had was anxiety. This is so true. According to Brene Brown, an intolerance to uncertainty is an important contributing factor to all types of anxiety. Those of us who generally are uncomfortable with uncertainty are more likely to experience anxiety in specific situations, as well as to have trait anxiety and anxiety disorders. Our anxiety often leads us to one of two coping mechanisms, worry or avoidance, and we're going to dive into both of these emotions on the next episode. Anxiety, which is similar to fear in the sense that it needs to be understood and respected. We need to sit with our anxiety and we need to understand why it's showing up. Ask ourselves what we need to do, what we need to learn. 
So how do we deal with the anxiety? Well, we all have habitual ways of dealing, and these are patterns which most likely stem from childhood. Harriet Lerner's book, The Dance of Connection, identifies these patterns of dealing as either over-functioning or under-functioning. Over-functioners, they move quickly to give advice, rescue, take over, micromanage, and get in other people's business rather than looking inward. Under-functioners tend to get less competent under stress. They invite others to take over and often become the focus of family gossip, concern, worry, and they can get labeled as irresponsible, the fragile ones, or the ones who can't take the pressure. Harriet explains that understanding these behaviors as patterned responses to anxiety rather than deep truths of who we are can help us understand that we can change. We have patterned ways of managing anxiety that we developed in our first families. Some researchers would also argue that birth order plays a role. For example, the oldest child tends to be an over-functioner, while the youngest tends to be an under-functioner. And I'm definitely an over-functioner and also the oldest, so this makes sense to me. I'm really good in a crisis and can immediately recognize what needs to be done and how to get it done. But this comes at a cost. When I'm over-functioning, I'm not actually allowing myself to feel my feelings. And I know that they're going to come out if I don't deal with them at some point. It's just a way of bypassing them by over-functioning. And I've now worked really hard to recognize when I'm in this mode, so now I can allow myself to feel the feelings. Both under- and over-functioning are forms of armor. They are learned behaviors for getting out of fear and out of uncertainty. The over-functioner's motto is, I won't feel, I will do. I don't need help, I help. The under-functioner's motto is, I won't function, I will fall apart, I don't need help, or I don't help, I need help. Over-functioners, if we can name it and own it, we can work on being more vulnerable in the face of anxiety, and under-functioners can work to amplify their strengths and competencies. Both over- and under-functioners can work to develop a calm practice that can center us from defaulting into these pattern ways of behaving. Feeling calm is a practice. We all have that ability to practice calm, and Brene Brown in Atlas of the Heart shares a practice for calm that I'm going to go into detail about. So the first step is to try and be slow to respond and quick to think Do I have all the information I need to make a decision or form a response? A lot of times our panic or anxiety-driven response is due to a lack of data. Do I even have the information I need to respond? The second step is to stay mindful about the effect that calm has on anxious situations. A panicked response produces more panic and fear. Harriet Lerner says anxiety is extremely contagious, but so is calm. Do we want to infect people with more anxiety or heal ourselves and the people around us with more calmness? If we choose to heal with calm, we have to commit to practicing it. And small things matter. Can you count to 10 before you respond? 
Can you give yourself permission to say, I'm not sure, or I need to think about this, or tell me more? Lastly, take a breath before responding. Slow down, stay aware of your own over and under functioning, name it, and normalize talking about it in your families. For me, I experienced anxious brides all the time as a wedding photographer, and I would just practice being calm, and it would help them be calm as well. So panic creates more panic. Calm creates more calm. There are mirror neurons that are brain cells that match what we see, match our intensity, tone, and volume, and anxiety. So when a bride would see me being calm, she would mirror that and be calm herself. Think of the last time you got into a heated argument and started yelling. What did the other person do? Most likely they matched or mirrored your intensity, tone, and volume. These are mirror neurons at work. And the last thing Brene shares about creating a calm practice is to ask yourself these two questions. Do I have enough data to freak out? Very often the answer is no, but if it's a yes, just move on to the next question. Ask yourself, will freaking out help if I have enough data? And the answer to that one is always no. So what happens when practicing calm isn't enough? For some of us, meds are the answer. I believe it's an and world. We use the meds when we need them and we do the work to heal our issues. In Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps a Score, he says, in many places, drugs have displaced therapy and enabled patients to suppress their problems without addressing the underlying issues. When I was 22 years old, I experienced a massive medical trauma of what I would later come to understand was a completely unnecessary surgery that resulted in the removal of four and a half feet of my small intestines and other organs. But at that time, I didn't know what had happened to me. All I knew was that when I went into the hospital, I could eat food like a normal person. And when I left the hospital, I couldn't. I was struggling. I had no idea what was going on with my body. And I wasn't getting any answers from the doctors I had put my trust into in the first place. I felt so alone, stressed, and completely anxious. Every single time I would eat anything... The food would just move through me in a matter of minutes. Everyone would still be at the dinner table and I would have to excuse myself to the bathroom. Did I mention I was a recent graduate and I was 22 years old with my whole life ahead of me? This was not a part of my plan. I was terrified of what the future looked like for me. And back then, I didn't have nearly the tools I have now for coping. My toolbox was so limited. But I knew I needed help. I knew I couldn't get through this time of my life alone. So I turned to Cymbalta. Cymbalta is a SNRI medication for anxiety and depression. It helped me do what I couldn't do for myself at that time. I love how Glennon Doyle explains her use of medication. She says it balanced the chemicals in her brain to get her to an even playing field. It hasn't allowed her to escape the human experience, but it has instead allowed her to have the full human experience. One of my biggest fears at that time was that I would stop feeling everything, which in some ways did happen. 
but I also needed to stop feeling so much so I could stand back up again. And once I got my footing back, I was able to go off of it, which by the way, if you've ever had to come off of a drug like Cymbalta, it's horrible. But I did it and I haven't had to go back on it since that time, but I absolutely would if I needed it. Sometimes we need help and that's totally okay. Now there's another form of anxiety known as anxiety attacks or panic attacks or in more severe cases, panic disorder. Panic disorder is an anxiety disorder that's characterized by unexpected and repeated episodes of intense fear accompanied by physical symptoms that may include chest pain, heart palpitations, shortness of breath, dizziness, or abdominal distress. These episodes occur out of the blue, not in conjunction with a known fear or stressor. Not everyone who experiences a panic attack will develop a panic disorder. And this is the case for me. I've luckily only had one panic attack in my life. A few years ago, my husband was working the night shift and my dog had recently passed away, so I was home alone. And around 3 a.m., I heard a loud noise that jolted me awake. In a matter of seconds, my entire body responded. My heart was racing, I began to shake, and my breathing became shallow. I listened intensely for more sounds. I crept to the bathroom and stepped on the side of the bathtub to look out the window and see if anyone was in the driveway or if the motion lights were on. I didn't see anything. I tried to lay back down and tell myself it was nothing, but something was going on in my mind that was different from anything I'd ever experienced. I began to panic. I knew there was someone in the house, even though I was positive the security system was on. I still knew someone was in the house. My mind raced. My heart raced faster. I was sweating. I began to move furniture in front of the door as quietly as I could in the total darkness, not wanting to even turn the flashlight on on my phone. I placed the nightstand and a chair blocking the door. I once again tried to get into bed and calm my breath down, but it wouldn't work. The thoughts wouldn't stop. I began to text my husband, but he didn't respond. I began to text more. I began to call him and call again and call again, all to no response. The terror inside of me grew and grew. I went into my closet. I grabbed my pink Ugg boots and I went in the bathroom, locked that door, climbed into my bathtub with the boots on, (laughs) convincing myself that someone was coming for me and I needed to have my boots on and be ready to climb out the window at any moment. The panic took over every part of my body. My breath became so rapid it was out of control. I was sweating. I called Ian again and again, no concept of how much time was passing. He finally answered, and I whispered into the phone, not wanting the person in the house to hear me. I tried to explain what was happening. I asked him to come home. I've never once asked him to come home from work. His initial response was anger. He couldn't just leave work. I told him how much I needed him to come home. I felt so helpless. He finally agreed, and I told him to call when he was in his truck. My heart raced. My ears listened for every little sound, convincing me that someone was coming for me. I couldn't breathe. 
what seemed like forever, but was only minutes later, he called and I had him stay on the phone the entire drive. My mind wasn't making any sense. When he finally pulled into the driveway, I had no fear that there was someone in the house that would get him, but I was still convinced they were coming for me. He got to the bedroom door, and after dragging my body out of the safety of the bathtub, I moved the furniture from in front of the door and fell into his arms. My heart was still racing. He just held me and held me until I could breathe again and slowly come back to reality. This is what my panic attack looked like. There were no rational thoughts, just chaos, fear, and panic in my mind. It was terrifying. At this point in time, I had the tools to relax and calm my nervous system, but I couldn't even think to use them. It was as if my body and my mind were completely taken over. These last couple of years have shown us just how little control we really have. The thought that we could control anything was truly only ever an illusion. But I noticed for myself, the more I secluded myself and stayed home during COVID, during the beginning stages, the more anxiety I felt those first times of going back out into the world. It's imperative that we make taking care of our bodies and emotions a priority. Everyone already knows that stress and anxiety, especially chronically, are not good for our bodies. If you need medicine, take it. There's no shame in needing help. But go to therapy, find a coach, a therapist, find someone you can talk to. Many of us cannot process our emotions just in our heads alone. We need someone else to process with. I know this is true for me. Normalize conversations of anxiety in your homes and in your families. Talk about these things. Exercise regularly. Exercise is the best way to complete the stress cycle to move emotions through the body. Try to get enough sleep. Sleep deprivation can make anxiety worse. Cut out or cut down your caffeine. Caffeine can worsen anxiety. Avoid using tobacco, alcohol, and other substances that can worsen your anxiety. Explore stress reduction and mindfulness techniques like meditation and yoga. If I had to pick only one thing to do, it would be to meditate every morning. It's like taking the trash out. Every day, I take the trash out of my mind. And yoga? Try yoga. When I first started doing yoga, it was not at all for the physical benefits. It was 100% about quieting my mind down. When I first discovered yoga, I was having the busiest year in my photography career. I was waking up in the middle of the night feeling anxious and stressed. And I started doing yoga and it was as if the dial of my mind got turned down. And now we have proof of how beneficial yoga is for anxiety. So Boston University School of Medicine conducted a study that compared the efficacy of yoga to walking. Researchers randomly assigned participants to either a yoga group or a walking group. Each group did their respective exercise three times a week for 60 minutes over the course of 12 weeks. Participants' brains were scanned before and after the 12-week intervention, and anxiety and mood levels were measured throughout the duration of the study. The results showed that the yoga group 
experienced significantly greater improvements in mood and anxiety and higher levels of GABA than the walking group. What's special about this study is that it demonstrates that yoga can increase levels of GABA in the brain and also bring about better mood and lower anxiety. It's encouraging to see brain science validating the therapeutic value of mind-body approaches like yoga. And anti-anxiety medications work in part by affecting the GABA levels in the brain. This study shows we can also do this naturally with yoga. Just another reason to try yoga. For today's tool and resource to help us, I am going to introduce you to box breathing or sometimes referred to as square breathing. It's a deep breathing technique that can help you slow down your breathing. It works by distracting your mind as you count to four, calming your nervous system and decreasing stress in your body. Box breathing is a simple but powerful relaxation technique that can help you return your breathing pattern to a relaxed rhythm. It can clear and calm your mind, improving your focus. Box breathing can help you with panic and stress. It can help you with anxiety. The counting helps you take the focus from panic-producing situation enabling you to handle and control your response. It also helps you sleep if you have insomnia. It helps you to control that hyperventilation as you can instruct your lungs to breathe in a rhythm. It helps you to refocus and it eases that panic and worry. It just helps keep you calm. It lowers your blood pressure and decreases cortisol, which is a stress hormone which can improve your mood. Come sitting tall. You can do this from sitting on the ground or sitting in a chair. If you're sitting in a chair, have your back resting against the back, feeling supported, your feet on the floor. I like to place one hand on my heart and one hand on my belly. Closing your eyes, begin to breathe in and out as you normally would observing the rise and the fall of your chest and your stomach. Be aware of your breath to ensure that you're taking deep breaths, allowing your stomach to rise. Visualizing a box in front of you. The top of the box is going to represent our inhalation of four seconds. The side of the box is us holding our breath. The bottom of the box is exhaling. And the other side is holding that breath out. So visualizing your breath in this breathing pattern, you can concentrate on the box moving through the box, or you can concentrate on the counting, whatever works for you. We'll do each of the sides to a count of four. Inhale, two, three, four. 
Hold. Two. Three. Four. Exhale. Two. Three. Four. Hold out. Two. Three. Four. Inhale. Two. Three. Four. Hold. Two. Three. Four. Exhale. Two. Three. Four. Hold out. Two. Three. Four. Inhale. Two. Three. Four. Hold. Two. Three. Four. Exhale. Two. Three. Four. Hold out. Two. Three. Four. Inhale. And gently relax the breath. Relax your hands. And just notice any subtle shifts from just that quick and easy three minutes of breathing. And gently becoming present to the room and gently opening your eyes. Today's poem that I would like to leave you with is the poem called She Let Go by Sapphire Rose. She let go. She let go. Without a thought or a word, she let go. She let go of the fear. She let go of the judgments. She let go of the confluence of opinions swarming around her head. She let go of the committee of her indecision within her. She let go of all the right reasons. Wholly and completely, without hesitation or worry, she just let go. She didn't ask anyone for advice. She didn't read a book on how to let go. She didn't search the scriptures. She just let go. She let go of all of the memories that held her back. She let go of all of the anxiety that kept her from moving forward. She let go of the planning and all of the calculations about how to do it just right. She didn't promise to let go. She didn't journal about it. She didn't write the projected date in her day timer. She made no public announcement and put no ad in the paper. She didn't check the weather report or read her daily horoscope. She just let go. She didn't analyze whether she should let go. She didn't call her friends to discuss the matter. She didn't do a five-step spiritual mind treatment. She didn't call the prayer line. She didn't utter one word. She just let go. No one was around when it happened. There was no applause or congratulations. No one thanked her or praised her. No one noticed a thing. Like a leaf falling from a tree, she just let go. There was no effort. There was no struggle. It wasn't good and it wasn't bad. It was what it was. 
And it's just that in the space of letting go, she let it all be. A small smile came over her face. A light breeze blew through her and the sun and the moon shone forevermore. She let go by Sapphire Rose. Thank you so much for tuning into the episode and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you're ready to dive deeper into your own emotional expedition, I invite you to join me in an intimate eight-week virtual book study of Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart. And in case you're not quite ready to join the study, I wanted to share a free offering that I often suggest to people as a little bit of a compass to get them started on their emotional journey, the meditation to alleviate stress. You can find the meditation and the book study linked below. I'm so grateful you're here. Thank you for listening. And if you loved this episode, will you please share it with a friend or two? Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you're sure to never miss a single episode. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM. Women's Voices Amplified.